0: Well good evening. We are rolling along. This is our fourth of five times together in the Psalms. We'll do Psalm 23 tonight and some related sheepery type of discussion and we'll uh, move to Psalm 150 next week with some bonuses. We'll take a look at how the Psalms were used in celebration and in praise. Spend a little time focusing on the biblical concept of praise next week but We'll go to uh, the old standard, Psalm 23, because it's so beautiful and there's some such wonderful images there that I hope that we can be reminded of. So uh, let me pray for us and we'll, uh, we're going to have a little exercise at our table first as we I'm going to have you look at the psalm uh, from a doctor's eyes and uh, see if we can diagnose what what's going on in the psalm. But let me, let me pray for us and we'll get going. Lord, thanks so much for uh, each one here and the privilege to uh, freely gather and come and and study the Word of God and be affected and changed by it. Um, As we uh, look at this, um, what many would hold the most beautiful piece of literature ever written, uh, may we be uh, changed accordingly. May we see you in a way that perhaps we haven't before. May we see ourselves in a way that you see us in these uh, really three images that we see in this psalm. So thank you for the privilege of uh, spending an hour and a half or so and looking at precious words Uh, from our Heavenly Father. We ask the Spirit of God now to be our teacher this evening. Guide us into all truth. Uh, Convict us in areas where we need change. Affirm us where we are pleasing to you. For our time with you and each other, we ask you to bless it now. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. Of course, the the image of the sheep and the Lord, my shepherd, from verse 1 comes out. But there's actually a little bit more to the psalm uh, than that. And I want to Uh, spend a little uh, moment or two, just go ahead and get your Bibles out, and I I want us to take a look at how the Bible, or how this psalm sees us, by the way. Sometimes we think we're a little bit more attractive than we might uh, actually be. This is how the psalm actually sees us, and uh, with all the, it's one of the three ways the psalm sees us. It's the predominant emblem or symbol in this psalm, but I wanted to give you a good look in case you haven't seen a sheep lately. Uh, This is what a one brand looks like, and I wanted to take a little exercise and, and, and ask this question. Now, last time we, we, when we looked at Psalm 63, you remember it had an inspired superscription. It said, when, when David was in the wilderness, and it, we added to that that most likely it was during his time of fleeing from Absalom. You'll see several of the Psalms. Tonight has one, too, a Psalm of David. But it doesn't, which is inspired text, but it doesn't give us any background in what's going on. And sometimes to figure out the background is really helpful to see what the psalm is doing. Well, if we don't have an inspired background, we don't have God telling us this is what was going on in David's mind when he wrote it. We don't even know when he wrote it. Most likely he wrote it later in his life. Uh, but we can look at the psalm and go backwards, like our friends Sherlock Holmes here and, and Watson, and try to figure out. What were the concerns or problems, however you want to state it, that the psalm addressed in David's life? In other words, if, if Psalm 23 provides the solutions, what were the problems? What, what is this addressing? And what, we need to remember that we're reading often uh, responses to issues. The New Testament is the most clear on that. We'll see a letter to the Corinthians Well, Paul just didn't decide to write the Corinthians, think I'll drop a little ditty off to the Corinthians, maybe about 16 chapters worth. No, they brought him issues, whether by messenger or letter or combinations, and then he addressed those in response. So really what we're often seeing here in the scriptures is responses to issues that were going on. So in order to be good detectives, we have to figure out from the solutions what the problems were. So spend a moment or two uh, in Psalm 23 with yourself or with your table and, and just review the, the Psalm 23 with the lens of looking for the problems or the concerns that the psalmist might have been experienced prior to the writing of the psalm. He writes the psalm after his issues have been dealt with and he tells us about it, but let's go back before the writing and before he got solutions, what might be some of the issues? that were on his heart and on his mind that the psalm that the psalmist addresses. You can just list them in your notebook or talk about them among yourselves, but spend just a, a, a few moments. This is also a good technique in order to invoke good observation, especially on very familiar texts. Psalm 23 problem, from my perspective as a teacher, is you guys are going to go, hey, been there, done that. I've read Psalm 23 before. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to push this just a bit and say... Let's really carefully read it and, and sort of look at it through a different lens. What issues is the psalmist addressing? What might have been the problems before the writing of the letter in David's life? And this thus becomes the solution. So take a few minutes. I'll shut up and you guys can sort of look at it from that perspective. Okay. I just want you to tuck those away if you jotted them down, either actually or sort of lodged them in your mind. It's another way to sort of force yourself to be good observers of the text, to ask good questions, and to try to figure out what's the author's intended meaning. An interesting or a neat little way to remember author's intended meaning are the letters A-I-M. What's his aim? What was the author's goal in producing this letter? And often you can unlock letters like this or little poems like this by seeing the different areas, in this case in David's life, in which uh, the psalmist or God dealt with the psalmist. And then David writes what is known now as an individual psalm of confidence. We talked about an individual lament psalm last week in which he was expressing his concern. We knew from the inspired superscription what the situation was. And then if we didn't even have that, he tells us what the problem is. In, in individual expressions or psalms of confidence, actually what's happened is, is because the, the psalmist has been so affected by the Lord's constant love and care for him, and that's what he recalls in the psalm, he can confidently express his care for the Lord, his love for the Lord, and his ability to handle whatever it is that's coming his way because he's been through the mill, if you will, with the Lord. He's been in the battles uh, and God has come to his rescue time and time again. And so confidence with fide, with faith, he can express his ongoing trust of the Lord based on God's past provisions for him. So I think we're going to see some situations in here where David was struggling, as we've seen before. Uh, and these are areas in which uh, David recalled God's goodness to him and was confident in, his, in those expressions and confident in God's continual care for him, thus his conclusion in verse 6. It's been called the shepherd psalm because admittedly the sheep-shepherd imagery is the predominant image um, or metaphor, but actually there are three scenes or three images. If this was a movie, there would be three separate sets in the movie. The, the the long opening first act would be in the field as a shepherd with his sheep. Uh, and that's clear the pasture imagery in verses one through four, where the shepherd sheep emblem or metaphor comes out. Uh, we also see, however, that there's a banquet hall in verse five and a, a gracious hosts who set a table uh, before David. Uh, these areas all would have been literally familiar to David, spent a lot of time in the pasture. Literally with sheep, he spent a t- he spent time in the king's palace and has seen fine meals. And as we saw last time, he loved to go to the sanctuary, uh, where the ark of the covenant was. Uh, the The presence of God literally closer there in that day and age than. Uh, that we might think today, and he loved to be in God's presence. And that seems to be what he is longing for, I'm going to argue a bit um, for, and that he desires to uh, be there again and wants to always be there. Uh, This is really a look back over David's life. Uh, This is why the psalm is so emblematic of his time with the Lord. These are the life lessons that he's learned from God, and he chose to use those three scenes from his literal life But the passage is going to take on spiritual and metaphoric meaning quickly as we leave the emblems or the metaphors behind and we see that they get converted to spiritual language and how God has dealt with him like a shepherd has with a sheep, like a gracious host has in the provision of a meal, like a wonderful time in worship Uh, where he's actually in the presence of the Lord in the, uh, in the tabernacle. You gotta kind of understand sheep and shepherds to understand this uh, passage a bit. Probably not a lot of, not most of us aren't shepherds, I might venture. And in fact, at the back of your book, you've got, I think on page 115, 118, we did a a pretty long discourse if you wanna uh, read that on your own. But I just sort of took some lifts from that just to gotta get us in the mood of what it's like to be a sheep. Um, uh, and a shepherd. Uh, To be very obvious, the main job of a shepherd was to provide food and water for sheep. You don't have to go to seminary to understand that. You don't have to know too much. But that's the essence of the relationship. And it's going to be the key image that David's going to bring out in this psalm. Because sheep are not very good at finding things for themselves, neither food or water, but especially food. Uh, and they need thus guidance. And we're going to see the many provisions of the Lord in our lives spiritually being compared uh, by the use of the metaphor of how a shepherd would care for his sheep. Uh, There's all sorts of biblical imagery uh, of the sheep and shepherd, In uh, we see in uh, God the Father being seen as the good shepherd in Isaiah 40. Ezekiel, by the way, will talk about bad shepherds, the priests that were not caring for the people, but God is seen as a the chief shepherd here in Isaiah 40, uh, the good shepherd, obviously, in Christ in John uh, chapter 10. Uh, elders are to shepherd the flock of God among them. The same uh, words that you'll see throughout the scriptures, this idea of a pasture, thus pastor. Uh, The idea of feeding and providing, feeding and leading is usually a neat way to remember that. But this imagery is found throughout the Scripture because he employed events and occupations that were routine to his audience. Uh, The day in the life of a shepherd might start in the morning where he uh, would call forth his flock unto himself. Think of all the many verses that Jesus would use. My sheep hear my voice, for they they know it. There's a particular call that a shepherd would have that, his sheep would come to him because at night sheep uh, were mixed in with other sheep from other flocks. But in the morning he would call his own to himself. And they would go out into the field and often would be watched with the help of, of dogs that the shepherd would also have. Uh, they would uh, The shepherd would search for stray sheep for they are prone to wander. Uh, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Uh, and the main reason that he would search for The sheep is that he's responsible. And thus, the image in the New Testament of the hireling is not all that concerned, but the good shepherd wants to take care of those because they're his and they're not just um, under his stewardship. They actually belong to him. At least once a day, sheep need a good watering, and he would supply the flock uh, with water from streams or little troughs that came out from predictable wells. You've got to keep in mind, we're going to see some topography of the land in which. Some of this uh, shepherding was going on. At times it was very brutal and hostile land, and water became very crucial uh, to their literal existence. In the evening, he would call his sheep back to himself, and they would go to some sort of a pen. Sometimes they were shepherd pens that were uh, routinely out in the wilderness. Sometimes he would gather uh, the equivalent of of branches and thorns and thistles and make a circle, uh, and he would bring them in one by one, and they would pass what's called under the rod, his shepherd's rod or his hand hand, as he would count them individually. And so that inspection in the morning, that inspection at night, the imagery of care throughout the day. Sheep and goats were kept together during the day, but interestingly, are separated at night. Jesus in Matthew 25 will talk about the separation of the sheep and goats. Uh, imagery very familiar to his audience. That this is just what happened, that different kinds were separated from each other you might see images like this uh, in, in your day as a, as a sheep or a shepherd. Um, the, the, the terrain would change and at times would be very dangerous. Uh, it would be at times very refreshing and beautiful and calming. Uh, all the sort of the day in the life of the sheep and the shepherd is captured in this little psalm if we look carefully. But these are the images that, that uh, Palestinians and the Israelis uh, experience daily. Uh, this is uh, right above Nazareth, by the way, and, and the, the topography of the land, as you see it, has vegetation, but it can be some tough walking as it's uh, the rock outcroppings are, are consistent. Uh, the, of course, the, the way you make money in this business is to have baby lambs, uh, which grow up to be rams and ewes, and then they have more, and that's how you make a living, as you shear them and sell them. And so the importance of the new sheep uh, and the care for the mothers and the protection of those that were too young or perhaps injured by the shepherd... Um, the flocking of the sheep as they would go into uh, their particular areas at night or be called by the shepherd. This is actually some photos from uh, in and around Jerusalem, probably from the 1920s. It may be a little tough to see, but it's really quite stark imagery where the uh, Bedouin shepherds are taking care of the sheep in this quiet water um, pool. Um, You see the land can also become very stark uh, and dangerous as uh, as you would make your way to better pastures. You might have to go through some rough terrain to get to the next pasture because you didn't want to overgraze a particular area. And like we're experiencing now, drought, the lack of rain, can affect how you would maneuver. And you had to go where where water was predictable. Um, it's hard to see, but he's actually pouring oil on the head of sheep for oil. Just the compress from, from olive oil was a, a salve. It uh, would have been an ointment for protection against open wounds, or was used in bathing as well to soften the skin, and then the provision of water in the sheep pen as they were brought in at night. And what you can see is some pretty tough, arid area. The sheep's pen at times were used collectively by several shepherds that would come in into various areas in their march throughout the pasturing season, Um, This would be a very nice one. Many times they would have just been these brambles that would have been um, put together, and there would be one door, and the shepherd at night would lay down in front of the door. Um, I lay down my life for the sheep, and no sheep can leave without my knowing or come uh, without my knowing. And that imagery is obvious uh, throughout the New Testament as the Lord Jesus uh, pictures it. There are three major sections to this little uh, psalm of only six verses, but the first four is going to describe how the Lord leads David using the metaphor or the emblem of the shepherd with his sheep. We'll also see that David will then reflect upon the Lord as his sovereign deliverer under the emblem of a gracious host in a banquet hall. It's sort of like David is looking back over his life and, and maybe like a movie, maybe somebody that writes movies, or, or poetry and literature can think this way. Those kind of word pictures just came to his mind and those concepts of what life was like with, with God. His time in the wilderness early as a boy, as he was a shepherd, his time in the banquet hall, and lastly, the, the confidence that he will exude uh, since he knows the good and loyal love of the Lord. It will always follow him, and he shall be drawn to communion with the Lord. Um, and even in times where he was estranged from the Lord, Um, That was God's goodness that always brought him back. And we saw that in the Lament Psalm as the lamenter recalled God's previous acts of kindness toward him. And here in the expression of confidence, he is confident that God will continue to persist in his goodness and his loyal love to me. We'll we'll spend a little time on that uh, important word, loving kindness or loyal love, because it's the essence of how God is faithful to us. Um, not just as a king here in the Psalms, but as all human beings uh, who know Him through His Son. Uh, let's, as, as our habit, let's just spend a moment as I'll read it. And um, you've had a little opportunity to, to observe, and I want to uh, just read it and bring out some things. And I want to show you some things by color code of how I think these word pictures fit together. Because they don't follow uh, the verses necessarily. Sometimes the last half of a verse might be joined, in my opinion, with the first half of the next verse. We'll throw that out for your consideration, but let's just go through this psalm together. Uh, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You do prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's interesting that the psalm uh, begins with the use uh, of the word Yahweh here and concludes with the personal name of God. Uh, Certainly, David used the the Hebrew Elohim from time to time, but he was in a covenant relationship with the personal God, Yahweh. Uh, From the Hebrew to-be verb family, I am all the way to He is, that word conveyed that idea of the ever-existing one. And what we're going to see in this psalm is the ever-present one. For lo, I am with you always, uh, that kind of imagery that Jesus will say in Matthew uh, 28, uh, here, for you are with me, uh, the ever-presence of the Lord is at the forefront of David's mind as he recalls God's goodness and his loving kindness. Now from a little color code perspective, I'm going to present the material this way, that actually the Lord being my shepherd and my lack of want is actually connected to the place in which I eat as I lie down, as he makes me lie down in green pastures. Then the, the restoration, the healing ministry or provision of the Lord kicks in as he takes me to quiet waters and there... He restores my soul. So the importance of peace and, and rest and quiet uh, in the overall healing ministry of the Lord. Don't just think of getting over some sort of illness. But as we're going to see here, uh, the, the concept of soul in Hebrew thought is all that one is. It's, it, a person is a soul. They don't just have a soul. Uh, Hebrews viewed a person as a soul. Uh, he guides me then in the right paths. He knows the way to go like a good shepherd. He can get me through uh, the difficult parts of the terrain. Uh, even in, in while we're out uh, foraging for food and water, it can be dangerous. Uh, and we might walk in dangerous areas. And we're going to talk a little bit about the imagery that's, that you would see on a daily basis. And it was quite frightening uh, as you see shadows move. And it's hard to figure out what's down there and, and the lack of clarity of what's going on. You need a guide that knows the path. And if you've ever done any wilderness hiking or hunting or fishing, you depend upon your guide uh, to go to the right spots. Uh, and that comfort that comes with the, the good guide uh, who emblematically leads with the rod and staff. Those are the implements of his guidance. And then the image changes as we, we leave the pastor pasture and we go now to a banquet hall. Uh, in the king's palace, I take it in David's mind, and this table that is prepared and then this interesting little phrase, uh, in the presence of my enemies. Uh, they're watching, and we'll see how the words sort of unfold there. As David, as we've seen in the Lament Psalms and we've seen in Psalm 1 and 2, uh, the retribution uh, is a part uh, of what the, uh, he is confidently expecting, that God will vindicate me even if times are tough. Uh, my enemies will be defeated. Uh, and and, and that the, the idea of anointing and, and, and enjoying the fat of the food something that we try to avoid, but that was a great luxury and something typically reserved only for the Lord in that economy, and that idea of of anoint here. It's a different word than we saw in Psalm 2. Uh, Lastly, his conclusion. If all that is true, if my lessons learned out in the field and in the banquet hall are true, then surely goodness and mercy or goodness and loving kindness will follow me because they always have been. God has been consistently loving me and been loyal in the relationship that he and I are in, David concludes. And so I want to go where he is. Remember, in his mind, the Lord was in that place particularly. He now dwells inside of all of us, but and that's the major difference between the age in which we lived and the age in which David lived, in which only kings and a few special emissaries of the Lord were granted the indwelling Holy Spirit, and only for a time, it seems that Saul had the Holy Spirit leave him. Psalm 51, David says, take not thy spirit from me. He wanted to go where God was in his physical location, and so he wanted to be around the Lord. That's how he concluded. Sort of like Solomon at the end of Proverbs, he writes a very simple saying, you know, it's good to follow God. This is the conclusion of David. I take it toward the end of his life as he concludes and thinks about his, the images of his life with the Lord. Uh, Using the settings, therefore, of a pasture and a banquet hall and the sanctuary, I believe that David is meditating on the many provisions of the Lord. And that's the the key uh, phrase I want you to think about. Others will say the many ministries of the Lord, but I think provisions is a little bit more precise. This is what God is doing for us. It has applicability certainly to David back then, but these are the consistent types of provision that God has for His sheep. David meditates on the many provisions of the Lord and confidently, and that's important, concludes that his, that is the Lord's, persistent, loyal love will draw him to communion with the Lord in the sanctuary. Whether he is estranged from God or tight with God, it is God's consistent, loyal love that will keep him coming back and thus keep him keeping on. And that's what uh, has permeated David's heart at this time in his life. And it's what he concludes that this is what life with God uh, is like so in the first four verses we 're going to um, probably do a lot more observation tonight than we 've done in the past. Take a look at at almost every word, making sure we see uh, the metaphor and then how it converts uh, because if we don 't do that we 've really missed the point of the psalm and there 's also some very uh, interesting word choices that David uses, sort of like pulling arrows from his quiver. he shoots these particular words that have great meaning and precise understanding and really can add to our understanding the beauty of this little poem. So in the first four verses, he's as we've seen him before, he's meditating. Uh, He doesn't use the word, but he is going back over in his mind that idea of haggah to constantly um, churn up, uh, as we might think out loud, the word has that idea uh, of what God has done for me. It's not just that quick, oh yeah, this is a deep pondering. A deep inner growl, as the word is translated elsewhere, the, uh, that gut kind of uh, inspection and, and deep thought that meditation truly is. And David meditates on how the Lord leads him using the emblem of the, the sheep and shepherd. And then we see him reflect on the Lord as his sovereign deliverer under the emblem of the gracious host. And lastly, as we've seen, he confidently concludes. So in our first section here, the meditation of the Lord and has leading ministry, uh, as he will uh, use these most familiar words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and we often stop there, but I think the next part of the second verse is connected to that imagery, because this is an imagery of feeding. Uh, the, if David actually was only uh, allowed to use one verse, the first verse actually captures everything that he's trying to say in the whole psalm. If Yahweh is my shepherd, what else do I need? Uh, and I think that's the most, one of the most basic truths of the faith that at times we sort of get faked out from and, and say, well, you know, if I just, if I just read this book, if I, if I just had that blessing, if I just went to that conference, if I just knew what Brian knew, my life would be more with the Lord. What he's saying is that he's sufficient. The Lord's as in his shepherdry, if that's a word, is sufficient. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. makes me think of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, the one who just said, I just need a crumb from your table, Lord Jesus, because she recognized the great sufficiency of the Lord. I don't need the whole loaf. I don't even have to sit at the table. If I could just have a crumb that would normally go to a small dog under the table, that would be enough. And that, that imagery of God's greatness and His fullness and His sufficiency, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore... I shall not want. It, it, it's, it goes hand in hand. And the idea of feeding now is going to come in, and, and literal feeding of sheep, but now we're going to switch it over to the feeding on the Word of God. Because He makes me lie down in the places where good green pastures are. And that's the that's why I take the two together. The key word here is this word shepherd. Uh, in in the in the root of the this is a participle, so the root of this word is to feed. So, that, so one who feeds, we would say, is a feeder. That's the essence of what a shepherd is, one who provides food. Um, and let's throw water in in that um, provision, that he is a feeder of those under his care. And of course, metaphorically, we're going to move from the sheep and shepherd imagery to the, the feeding that the Lord provides for us, the sustenance that we make upon the Word of God, the spiritual food. I have food to eat that you know not of, Jesus said in the Gospels. That same kind of imagery throughout the Scriptures, whether it's Psalm 19, Psalm 119, John 16, 1 Corinthians 2, Hebrews 5, for solid food is for the mature because of practice have discerned or trained, or rather have trained their senses to discern good and evil. Solid food is for the mature. That idea that spiritual food is the essence Uh, to produce spiritual DNA, to produce spiritual muscles, to produce a spiritual life that is robust and consistent with the Lord. And that idea of of the importance of the Word of God is clear and obvious, and I think that's the very first thing that David is recalling as he writes this poem, the importance of spiritual food. And it's interesting that, um, that, that he is fed by always being placed in the best place where the best food is. That's the responsibility of the feeder. The responsibility of the shepherd is to make sure that the sheep are always in the best place and the best food is served. We've learned that sheep don't know how to find good food on their own, so they need guidance and they need it properly prepared and then served in a proper manner. And so the idea of, of how does he feed the sheep by play, putting them in this place where green pastures are. And the, the image is that once the sheep gets to this place of good food, they will eat upon the food and under uh, the enjoyment of the food will be able to lie down. There's no fear, no more uh, searching for food. They're satisfied on the, um, the succulence and the richness of the food that's found in the green pasture. Uh, the image uh, is going to continue uh, in that the Lord leads to the very best provisions in life, so that he, the sheep, or David in this case, is satisfied. Uh, there is an imagery of quantity here. He lacks nothing. You don't see him asking for something he that has not been provided. And there's an imagery of quality as well. That he has the best, best provisions as seen in the lush green meadows of springtime, which is wrapped up in that word, green pastures. The Lord is my shepherd As a result, I shall not want, and I don't want because he makes me lie down in green pastures where the rich food is. And so we see really the first provision of the Lord in this little couplet. um, That is, he's a feeder, and that we are uh, the recipients of good food as he feeds us. Um, Then the next two sections come together, I think, in this imagery of, of healing, this overall idea of restoration. And I link quiet waters is the place where restoration occurs. And so he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. The the verb leads is in a particular stem in Hebrew that says he is the causing of the leading. He is totally in charge of where uh, the sheep go. And they are placed in green pastures and now quiet waters where they can rest and find restoration. He causes that leading. These are literally quiet waters. Uh, No danger of of rapids, no danger of drowning. Uh, There's a calmness to the quiet, is there not? There's a um, um, a rejuvenation that can occur. Hebrew word nacham, by the way, the word Noah comes from this word. Uh, He was called Noah in Genesis 5 because he will give rest to his people that idea of rest will come up later as well in the, in the text. And this is, I think, this phrase, he restores my soul, is really the key of that little exercise I had you do earlier. If your soul needs restoring, it means that it had gone astray in some way. It needed some kind of restoration. And I see that imagery in all of David's writings, that his time with God in meditation is where he is restored into proper relationship with him as he recalls God's past faithfulness to him and his present ministry of feeding, and in this case, of healing in the larger sense. He restores. The idea of the word is to return, to turn back. Uh, it's, you don't have to be in the field long to know that sheep wander, but the good shepherd uh, heals and restores those that might pick up scrapes and bruises as a result of their wanderings he restores classic way of phrasing things in hebrew my soul nefesh and the the idea here is that in hebrew thought a, a person was seen as a soul not possessing a soul we we tend to think that the soul is something in us they would say no you are the soul if you've ever studied church history the puritans thought the same way they saw people as souls and it's a beautiful way to look at life and image bearers of God in which every human being on earth is. Uh, They're a human soul uh, and and thus have a holistic approach to life. It's not just spiritual restoration. It's physical restoration. It's mental restoration. It's, we might say, psychological restoration. Um, The idea uh, to love God and your neighbor was to comprise that holistic type of life. That's really what's wrapped up in the idea of peace in the Old Testament, by the way. We sort of reduce that word to, you know, not fighting uh, or not arguing. It's more the idea of, of, of fullness, of wholeness. Uh, when when uh, Solomon dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 8, he says, it comes out in English, may, may you be wholly devoted to the Lord. But what he literally said is may you be complete with Yahweh. May Yahweh complete you in the sense of giving. That's where your identity is. That's where you see yourself as fully human uh, and also that's where you receive that that sense of fullness. When, when we sin and things are missing, that idea of sin conveys this concept of missing, we need to be restored, be made complete again. That's the image of the soul here. That That's what David is seeking. And I take it had had some issue in which his soul needed restoring. We don't know. It doesn't matter. What it is. We know the life of David. It's easy to see there were many times where he was estranged from God, many times where he was in war, many times where he was separated uh, from the sanctuary. We've seen him make that request before. I take it he's sort of looking at the whole of his life and concluding, um, my soul needed restoring from time to time. Uh, and his desire to be in the presence of God was the ultimate place of peace for him, the ultimate place of completion. Uh, He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my whole life, my soul. He leads David, in this case, to complete restoration. Uh, He leads him by placid waters. That's the emblem in the psalm, but it refers now to the spiritual side of the human. And, of course, the restoration of the soul is the ultimate truth. Uh, As we see now that the Lord is not only a leader, He causes the sheep to go to this place, he set in mind this is the place where you need to go. That's part of good leading is taking people where they may not know they need to go so that restoration and quiet can result. Uh, and so we see not only is he a feeder, but he is a leader and he's a healer and use that concept of healing holistically, that he is one who is involved in the completion and the recompletion of human beings, if you will, as we are schismed at times. Uh, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Uh, interesting word usage is here. The concept here of guiding is he, he, he leads by turning the eyes to a goal. That idea of guidance where, where you're not just going in front and saying, follow me. It's, it, it's look, let, let, let us go to this goal together. This is where we're going, uh, a more holistic form of of guiding, where the, where the one being guided is told what it is that the goal is, what we're trying to accomplish. And to do that, if my eyes were over here and my guide wants me to go over there, he's got to turn my eyes to that new goal. And so that idea of guiding is interesting. And then these paths of righteousness, it literally comes from the Hebrew word uh, to, to roll. Uh, and the idea is that if we roll something that has some weight, it creates an indentation in the dirt. Think of a wagon train. Uh, Wagon trains weren't prone to just kind of go off anywhere they wanted to. They would stay on the proven paths, which was the right path to get you there, because over time it had been worn in through the rolling of the wagon that this was the path to go. Uh, There's some indication that this word roll, by the way, could be the word behind Galilee, the, the northern part of Israel, uh, what we'd be familiar to our hill country around Kerrville, San Antonio, the land had a role to it. And so the idea of, of rolling, indentation, sometimes even circle, because a circle would produce some sort of an imprint, conveys this idea, but certainly it conveys the idea that this is a track uh, from something uh, that rolled, and that's what it's, that term being translated as paths. And we've seen this word righteousness before, but it's really the key to understanding the Lord psalm eleven seven says, The Lord is righteous, yea, he loves it okay it 's not just that he 's got some rules, and okay we 're going to have some rules here if i 'm going to be in charge. He loves it. He loves the ideas of standards and conforming to those standards. I mean the whole gospel presentation and message is based on that, is it not that there 's a standard we fall short or veer, do not meet that standard. And he comes up with a way through his son that we can meet that standard. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his right way of doing things, his ways of doing things. Hebrew word sadik, uh, Melchizedek in Genesis 13 or 14 uh, is the king of righteousness, the standard Old Testament word for what life with God was like. Brian. Oh, uh, Psalm eleven seven. Yeah, it is one of the clearest indications that God himself is the standard, and He is serious about the eye of people keeping the standard. So really what this, uh, this phrase that seems rather laborious, it, it simply means the right paths, The same image of, of finding where the other paths have uh, wagons have rolled out uh, the indentation on the land and follow that path. That's the guide who can take us on the right path. The good shepherd knows. The right way, the right path to travel. Now, sheep are prone to wander. So, Houston, we've got a problem. And that's the essence of, uh, of the um, bad news uh, of, the, of the scripture as it reports how God gathers wandering sheep and uh, woos them and guides them to follow uh, the right path. By turning our eyes, by being with us, by setting a goal with us to, um, to, to make meat. That end, We've seen this throughout the Scripture. We've seen it before and here a couple of times. And I love those little because verses that are found throughout the Scripture because it sort of does open heart surgery on the Lord and it lets us peer in to His intent. Why does He do stuff? Uh, We learn in Ephesians 2, for example, we're very familiar with, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Uh, Verse or two before that, He did all this Uh, to unbelievers who did not deserve anything so that he could show how gracious he was. In Romans he, he he put his son on a cross so he could show how righteousness, how righteous he was, and that he was serious about keeping standards. Here he tells us why he guides us on the right paths, so that we'll talk about him as a good guide. He guides me in the right paths for his name's sake, for his for the sake of his name his reputation. We don't talk that way much, but you've certainly heard that expression. Um, you know, this, that guy has a good name in the community. It's not that his name, John, Bill, Larry, Sandy, is, is good. The person behind the name, all that that individual stands for, has that good name. And that's that imagery here, that he's, his, his credentials as a guide are what's being discussed here. See, the reputation of the shepherd is built and maintained by his continued good guidance in care of the sheep. If you've ever been in hunting scenarios or places where you go that you just don't know what's going on and you want to, has anybody got a good guide? Anybody know how to get to the bottom of the, you know, this river or this creek? Because I'm going to kill us if I'm the leader. Well, you want to make sure that your leader, your guide, is certainly credentialed but has a reputation of being a good guide. So I'm far more prone to listen to Bob or Ernie say, oh, I went to that same place, and I'll always get Mike as your guide. He'll he'll take you to the fish, or he'll get you out of that dangerous scenario. His reputation has been built how? Trip after trip after trip after trip, following the rolled path, taking people with eyes together toward the goal, and then they come back and give credit to the guide. His His reputation is enhanced and is solidified. The reputation of the shepherd is built and maintained on the continued good guidance and care of the sheep. That's why testimony is so important. That's why throughout the Psalms, David is saying, man, I get out of this deal, I'm going to go tell everybody. Because we need to be encouraged and reminded by the active provisions of the Lord in people's lives that He is a good guide. And it's not just theory, it's not just theology, it's not just what the Bible says, although it's certainly true. I can experience it in my own life and go back and tell others that his guidance is sure and good, and those paths are the right paths to travel. So we see another provision of the Lord. We've seen feeding and leading and healing, and now the imagery of guidance. His reputation is built on how good a guide he is. That's really what's all involved when Jesus, who never had any sheep in real life, by the way. You'll never see an example where Christ was literally out in a field with real sheep, but he uses this emblem, this symbol, and says, I am the good shepherd. And he'll compare himself or contrast himself to uh, the hireling, the one in that image is who doesn't really care for the sheep. He has built a reputation of caring and guiding for the sheep. He, the, he, thus the Lord leads them in the right paths. Why? Again, the motive of the Lord is at his reputation. Very first command, he's jealous we sort of say, that's a bad word, jealous, that's not good. He is jealous that you follow him only. He wants no no other lovers in your life. And so, that's a good kind of jealousy because he is the best for us. And you see these, what appear to be rather egotistical statements of the Lord throughout the Bible. I am the way of the truth. I am the good shepherd. I am the light. All these things. I will draw all men unto me. Well, if he's the right guy, it's the correct thing to say. And so, that that imagery, that type of word usage is very correct, that his reputation is the reason that he does these things so others will see that he's good and he can be trusted. So the truth is that he leads in the right paths, and the reason that he does that is so that his reputation can be built, and is because his name depends upon it. You'll see that all throughout the Old Testament. We talked a little bit about it last time where... Um, chief uh, um, negotiators with the Lord, whether it be a David or a Moses or an Abram, will will come on and argue with God and say, no, you can't do that. If we're defeated, Lord, by these armies, that's going to make you look bad. That'll make you look like a weak king. He comes on along the scene in in Numbers and says, I'm just going to wipe everybody out. Moses goes, no, 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 you can't do that. You made a promise with us. And even despite our sin, you would stay with us and you would... Uh, be with us, and God then changes his mind. He was bringing Moses and his leadership abilities out as one who was a participant in the covenant and understood that as a member of the covenant, I have rights too, and I remind the Lord, if you will, of my rights, and God is pleased. Hey, you've been reading my book, I see. You read the contract, John, good. That pleases the Lord that we do things His way, the right way, okay? Um, The idea... It's going to come out now in the, certainly the most difficult um, Hebrew of this little phrase, or of this little uh, psalm, uh, and probably the most familiar verse. Um, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Uh, the, the key uh, main verb and main uh, subject is in the middle. Uh, I fear no evil, for you are with me. The other phrases are um, circumstantial to that. That's the main idea of the verse, thus in red. I fear no evil, for you are with me, um, is is thus our first place we're going to look. We've seen that word fear, normal Old Testament word, yare, for fear here. Uh, David, interestingly, fears the Lord, and as a result, does not fear adversity. He's been trained that a proper fear uh, in the Lord will overcome any kind of man-made fear that can come his way. Um, But the essence and the reason for his confidence is the ever-presence of the Lord. It's a doctrine that you'll see throughout the Scripture. Do you notice, by the way, we also had a move from the third person to the second person here. If you were following and following your pronouns, uh, he moves uh, to the you's or the thou's, and they're in my Bible. A little bit more permanent, away from the he now to uh, the you. Uh, and now the cardinal doctrine of all the scriptures is God with man. Uh, Emmanuel, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, and That image first comes out um, literally in the garden, but very clearly at, at Jacob's ladder in his dream where the Lord says, I'm, don't, wear, don't fear, I'm with you. Um, throughout the New Testament, Jesus says, Don't fear, I'm here. Uh, the end of Matthew, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, is how he ends the entire document. Elsewhere, the use of his name, Yahweh, the I am, and then as he moves it over to he is, literally, the Yahweh literally means he is, but it comes from the I am verb family. Uh, the I am ever-present one, I, am, he is always with us, that kind of imagery. It's a, it's a thread throughout the scripture on which our life with the Lord rests, the ever-existing person of God with us, uh, as we see both in Exodus 3 and Exodus 6. Uh, If you're now not fearing the Lord because He's with you, that's going to come under a test when you're out in the wilderness. uh, And you see land that is foreboding and, 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 and not vegetative at all. And the imagery, and if you've ever been out, and you see the movement of shadows, it's like uh, something that's alive, as the sun might tuck behind a, a cloud and then come out, or as, as it sets and, and you see the, the shadows move, it's that imagery that something foreboding is over there, because in a shadow you can't see well, obviously, but it appears to be alive, this place where the, 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 the shadow of death is imminent, and that's the image that I think he is going to be playing upon because he's seen scenes like this many times and he's contemplated, what, what's down in that valley? I wish I could see more. And images where it can turn from a pasture or a very placid river like we saw and just a mile or two away, a, a dangerous gorge in which the path right here, by the way, uh, could, um, if not stayed upon, could literally be lethal. And, and that imagery of the the valley, that has death, and that is enshadowed, is really what's playing on in his mind. Let's, let, let's take a, look close at, uh, a closer look at it. I love the way the verse starts, even though. It, it's a term in Hebrew and in English for, this is a real possibility. This is not, you know, just maybe this could happen. This is more of a term of certainty. Even though this might happen, uh, and it, it, the word is used to describe things that typically do happen, uh, this idea of a real possibility. Admittedly, the, the phrase valley of the shadow of death is difficult in the Hebrew language. The, the probably what's going on here is that valley is being modified by the phrase death shadow. So what kind of valley is it? It's a valley that has that, that's modified death shadow valley. Uh, and the possibilities then of that image is sort of what I was referring to. If you're standing on a good cliff and you look out and you see the movements of shadows, like it's a snake or some kind of alive thing, and it's a shadow here, then it moves over here, and they're all over the hills. The images of, that's an extremely dangerous place. I, I don't want to go there. The, that, that perhaps the, the shadow is like death, uh, haunting me, uh, waiting, lurking for me. And so the image of, I better stay where the path is rolled out, and stay with the guide who has averted my eyes, toward the goal that he has for me, because I don't know what's out there. I'm not confident out there. Uh, The ground is not sure out there because I can't see. And certainly David would have been very familiar with life-threatening situations. So all of these images from the field uh, that he would have known that we would have in our own lives, how we can picture um, life with the Lord, our own lives uh, from the images that we've seen in our own life, and I think that's what's going on here with this phrase, the valley of the shadow of death. And then it's interesting that the, the rod and staff, uh, the physical implements uh, become emblems uh, for comfort. Uh, a shepherd would have had uh, both a rod that could have been used for correction, uh, a longer staff that would have been used to help him uh, test the stability of a rock, uh, an area in which they might walk, or just to help him along the path, to provide like a cane. And there's an interesting, it's, it's harder to see in English, but the, the poetry of the Hebrew text is, is really quite beautiful as it balances between the, the dangerous time uh, that where he's not afraid because the Lord with him is the same amount of words and meter describe the, the Lord's rod and staff as being that place of comfort. So danger and comfort were sort of balanced in his life. They both exist. What's in the middle, the Lord is with me. So as I walk on the path, there's danger over here, and there's comfort on the path. And that imagery is is set out in really quite beautiful, balanced form. And the conclusion is, because you are with me, I won't fear. I won't fear that shadowy valley that I cannot predict how I would fare in that area. So the provision of the Lord here, obviously, is that of protection uh, in images, Like we just saw, where literally a slip could be fatal, Um, the importance of staying on the right path and following the guide who has built his reputation uh, and is with me. Um, That's the operative phrase, obviously. Uh, The Lord leads him through life-threatening circumstances. Certainly, that's very common to David. His experience with the Lord has produced in him a dependence of faith in God uh, that is uh, to be emulated. And the danger, of course, is that he may go through life-threatening circumstances, even though, and he doesn't dismiss that as uh, just theory, that's a real possibility and certain real uh, reality in David's life, many life-threatening circumstances. But above it all, by staying on the, the path time after time after time, he, with faith, he can confidently say that God is with me, and that thus I fear not. Um, the emblem, of course, is the of the rod and staff, that's what brings me comfort and that beauty between comfort and danger seen in this passage. But what's in the middle, the Lord with us provides, uh, is really what tips the balance, if you will. He meditates uh, as he's finished his uh, time in the the field with the sheep and the shepherd. It's a scene change. Uh, Perhaps it was a movie, it was intermission, time to go get some popcorn, come back, as we move now from coming out of the field, and it's dinner time. Uh, In this image, perhaps, he's come off the battlefield uh, and he's come to a place where he is safe, his own palace, of course, inside the city, which in all of their uh, cities then were also forts and thus the importance of a wall, and now this is a place for safety uh, and the place where I am, am the most relaxed and the place where I can enjoy some of the greater provisions of life, and he envisions now this banquet hall in which this gracious host uh, this sovereign deliverer uh, is going to set a meal before him, and he's going to invite his enemies to watch. They don't get any food; they just they're up in the gallery watching. And that image uh, of, of victory and vindication is is seen here, as we've seen in in his expressions of lament, and now his expressions of, of confidence. And then that will lead him as he looks back on all five verses, which is really his life with the Lord. To that confident conclusion that in which the psalm uh, will end is his desire to be in the sanctuary. You do prepare a table before me. Notice, God is the one who is preparing the table. You do prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Is his conclusion, literally to set in order uh, with the the imagery of, of dishware of of food and table, of food and dishes on the table, that imagery of provision. And that God is the one who's cooking the meal and setting the table before David shows the the intimacy of their covenant relationship and the enjoyment that we, in covenant with God, can have uh, as he provides for us in this case. Uh, Literally, he sets that that table, those dishes and foods, towards my face like he like he he moved my eyes from the path that I was on and moved them toward a goal that he wanted me to go with him on. He now has made sure that my face is in front or that the dishes are in front of my face at the table. As the imagery of before me is literally they're now facing me or they're towards my face. And then the enemy or in in the presence of my enemies is literally reads, In front of those that hem me in. Uh, there are several words for enemy in the Old Testament. One of them, by the way, is satan, from which we get the word Satan, uh, adversary or foe. That is really a, a description of Satan, as you see in Job, for example, the adversary, ha-satan, comes before the Lord. But it's a common word in the Old Testament for an adversary or foe, an enemy. But this is another word that describes what enemies do. Think about it. They... they they, they, they fence me in. They, they, I don't have any freedom when someone's chasing me and cutting my flanks off or, or trying to uh, route me from uh, the side or the rear or attack me from uh, in the front. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hemmed in by their presence. And that is sort of revealing of how he felt about that constant times of his life. David's life is marked by his times with the enemy, about the time he was 20, 21 until the time he was 30. He was on the run from Saul. His whole college and young adult life was built on the run as he, as he had to learn to depend upon God and, 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 his, and his men out in the field as the enemy taught or sought to hem him in. We saw last week where Absalom, his son, had him on the run, hemmed him in, sought to kill him. In the presence of my enemies, now God will set a table, set it toward my face, and they will see it. They will be it will be in front of them, literally, uh, those that hem me in. So security, even in the midst of trouble, that imagery sort of comes out now. That because the Lord is there and the Lord is providing for me, He's also protecting me from those enemies that God has also invited to this metaphoric banquet in which he is uh, the only recipient of food. Uh, He is anointed on the head with with fat, literally. It's not the word messiah, like we saw last time, from which we get the word Messiah. Uh, This is a a delicacy in their culture. Um, Again, if you read Leviticus, the fat was always reserved for the Lord, so it was uh, this choice part of the meal uh, that brought flavor, obviously. Uh, and they weren't all that concerned about gaining weight. I mean, they walked everywhere, so it wasn't that big a deal. And so, they uh, to have fat was a, a wonderful uh, opportunity of abundance and a demonstration of prosperity. And he he pours this melted fat in this image uh, all over his head, uh, and he is uh, it is before him uh, in a in a ridiculous amount of provision. And as a result, he uh, the, the image of of, of oil and Uh, that comes over him, this idea of of hospitality and joy, makes him step back and and uses the the emblem of the cup, uh, his his lot in life, uh, what you are given to drink, if you will. Uh, And whatever it was that David was given to drink, whether it's just a thimble full uh, or a bigger cup, it was not just full, it was overflowing. Why? Because God was the provider. God was the server. Uh, of that uh, of that cup and that oil in which he uh, placed over David. The imagery here is that of he's satisfied, he's saturated, he's full. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He, not, he doesn't just supply, he supplies abundantly. And over the top is the imagery. And of course, David's getting this meal in the presence of his enemies. And so the idea of protection, provision, we've seen elsewhere... Uh, is brought out by the Lord here in Psalm 23, verse 5. The Lord prepares a banquet table for David in the presence of his enemies, indicating, first of all, sustenance in times of need, that God will take care of him even if enemies are present. There was food from the Lord. He anoints his head with oil, indicating the rejoicing time of joy that can be present even in times of great need and great danger. Uh, and that the Lord makes his cup run over, that his abundant provision is his portion. And that is our, all of our portions uh, as we are in relationship with God. He holds nothing back from us. We are complete in him. We've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1. Uh, and I think one of the things that might grieve him the most is the failure to follow the imagery of, of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 and fail to see the utter sufficiency of the Lord and his overwhelming and abundant supply of all that we need has been provided over and above, is the image. So David has meditated on, on what life was like out in the field. He's been joyfully provided for you know, by a gracious host in a banquet setting as his enemies watched on. And now he lastly, he kind of puts all those together in a nice little bow and ties a good string about around it and says, If that's my life, then I am confident that God will continue to provide for me. Why? Because He has faithfully done it up until this day. I see no break in the provision in the past. Why would I therefore conclude that there will be a break in the future? Thus the importance of testimony, the importance of meditation, the importance of knowing God's faithful acts to us and me individually, really becomes the springboard by which we can confidently expect his ongoing provision in the future. So he confidently concludes that since the goodness and loyal love of the Lord will follow him always, that's what will draw him into communion with God. He basically concludes, why would I ever want to be anywhere else other than with the Lord if he is so consistently good and faithful to the covenant With which I'm in with him, that's that's how he concludes. It's it's a very logical conclusion. God is the absolute best covenanteer you'll ever be in a deal with. He's the best partner you've ever had. He's the best guy to sign a contract with you that you've uh, any contract you've ever signed. He will never not provide the stipulations of the covenant that rest on his table. He's simply asking us by his faithfulness would you attempt to mirror my faithfulness, to be like God or godly. And these two terms, goodness and loyal love, are going to be the operative ideas in David's mind and I think are highly applicable for us today because um, uh, th- th- these words are found throughout the Scripture. That's what draws him to want to be close to God. He, he's always with me. He always provides for me. He always feeds with me. Why would I want to go Anywhere else and that is easy to stand up here and say, and we all can nod our heads, but what is it in us that wants to get off that indented path and oh, this looks pretty good over here, whoop you know or whatever why would I want to stray from a path that he's told me not to and the the idea that to be reminded of his goodness and loyal love is what is compelling David to stay close to the Lord to stray to not Stray from the shepherd because he's had that experience. There's a, um, a, a, a time in being a, she- a shepherd in which, uh, after repeated times of attempting to bring sheep that are prone to wander close to the shepherd by throwing stones or patting them with a the rod, uh, in a desperate time while the, the young lamb is young, it's been known that the shepherd will actually break the leg of the, of the lamb, put it in a, in, a, uh, in a little cast, a little pouch in front of him and, and he'll carry that lamb in front of him uh, and maybe like Jacob who probably limped uh, the rest of his life after his little wrestling match uh, with whoever, uh, he, every time he limped he learned don't stray too far from the shepherd and he would have concluded that was a lesson well learned uh, and that's where David is coming to in his mind theologically that God is a God of such faithfulness and goodness I don't want to stray from him. There's nothing in a greener pasture, more green than that. So he concludes, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me. It's obviously a, a metaphor, but that's the, a perfect use of the word to show how faithful God is. He, he's just so loyal, he's, just, he's like he follows us. Wherever we go, he's faithful to be with us and to bring about his side of the covenant. Even in discipline, he has followed us to the place of sin is there to pick us up, dust us off, bring us back, avert, or move our eyes back to the goal, get us back on the rolled-out path, and bring us back into restoration. And He restores my soul. They will That goodness and loving kindness will follow me, and as a result, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, or perhaps return, and we'll see that idea. Uh, this, this phrase in English and in Hebrew begins with that word, surely. Uh, it's a term that introduces an expression of truth. What follows is the truth. Uh, It's interesting that Jesus often would say a similar thing. Uh, He would say, Amen, Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you. And the idea of Amen from the Hebrew word aman, that this is stable, this is sure, this is firm, this is solid, what I'm saying. There's a sustenance to it. There's a strength and stability to it. Surely, the truth is about to follow in what I say. And what he says is that Goodness and loving-kindness will follow me. Um, they are to be taken together, probably in what's known as a merism, as, as Yahweh's good, loyal love. It's a loyal love that's good. So it's a loving-kindness that's good. Now, we don't use the word loving-kindness all that much anywhere outside of church. I've never used it, by the way. Uh, but it has a wonderful concept that we deal with every day. Think about all the deals that we're in In our life. Now, don't just think about, you know, signing big contracts or new covenant sort of things. We're all participants of the new covenant. We probably either have a rent or a mortgage or some kind of responsibility to some kind of a party like a bank. Uh, We've we've signed agreements with the phone company, the light company, the gas company, the cable company. We, We have deals with our spouses. We have deals with our business relationships. We make deals all the time. We had a deal tonight. Sometime around 7, Grace Bible Church time, we'll start our little study tonight, okay? That's the general deal that we've practiced for three or four weeks. So don't just think of, of huge Ten Commandment moments. Loving kindness is this idea uh, to be determined that I'm going to be faithful and, and, and be true to that covenant or that relationship. It is the glue of the deal. And it is when it's used to describe God, I call it the glue of God. This is the, that part of God's character that says, whatever happens, I'm in it. I'm not leaving. Now I'll be true inside the covenant stipulations, and if that includes discipline, I'll be true to discipline, but there'll never be a time where I won't be with you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You are with me. Therefore, I will not fear. That's the, the beauty of that word, chesed in Hebrew. Same kind of relationship we talked about last week with Jonathan and David that had such uh, amazing connection throughout First and Second Samuel that the, the chesed was just passed on generationally. And Where, where David was expelled from Saul's table, Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, sat at David's table. Why? Because the difference between David and Saul was that David was a man of chesed. He said, I am making a deal with your dad, Mephibosheth, and I'll never go against it. And because I have invoked the same hesed that Yahweh has in, our rela- in his relationship with us, there's never an event that will take me away from that, uh, those, those covenant responsibilities. It's a crucial Old Testament word, especially important in understanding a Davidic king, as we've seen from Second Samuel 7, that the lineage will come through David, that he will... He, God, will remain true to that lineage and to be faithful and loyal to that image. That idea of hesed is that word. A loyal love, a loyal setting of the determined heart uh, to remain faithful to the covenant. And as a result, uh, it, 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 it's like they're pursuing me. It's, it's, it's not that I'm pursuing them. I can't shake this guy's faithfulness. And I hate to equate or even compare God to a dog, but I got one of those dogs that every time I come home, you just act like I've been gone for, you know, uh, 50 years. It just goes crazy. And I'm going, Maggie, I, I, was, I just went to the garage. I've, I've been gone 30 seconds. And that idea of I want to be with you, just ongoing pursuit. And you just can't shake it. And that's the image that that's what faithfulness or God's faithfulness, His loving kindness and goodness is like for us. And and so 6A then Surely goodness and mercy, or loving kindness rather, will follow me all the days of my life. That's his observation about the Lord. That, that's what he drew from the pasture. That's what he drew from the banquet hall. And that's what he just steps back and says, you know what? This guy's loving kindness and his goodness are pursuing me. I, I can't shake them. I don't want to. I, I love being with him. And, and I love the fact that he is so loyal in the relationship. And thus, in 6B, he decides if you will, in his, in his larger course of life, I'm going to stick with him. The New Testament says, the kindness of the Lord leads men to repentance. Same image of this concept of loving kindness. God can just out love us. He can love us to the point where we just go, what am I doing? Why, why do I just keep sinning against this faithful, loyal partner? Why would I do that? And he woos us. We, we often think we're only changed by the rod, and there is times for the rod, but also sometimes the kindness and love of the Lord. Paul will go on to make this wonderful statement, behold the, the, the kindness and severity of the Lord. At times he can issue a good whooping, and other times he can just love us into confirmation and bring us uh, into his will that way. And, and he's the perfect father perfect covenant here. That's what David kind of concluded. He goes, I'm not going to get a better deal than this. This this faithful good God is pursuing me. Um, I'm I'm sticking. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. And interestingly, this is the same word for restore. He restores my soul, as we saw in 23.3. Remember that little exercise I had you do at the first? Maybe some stuff's going on with David as he's thought through his life, or maybe he's in a particular Pickle, I don't know. Maybe he's estranged from the Lord. I'll lead my, I need some feeding. I need to be by my feeder. I, I need some good food. I need some restoration. I need some guidance. Maybe I've kind of veered off the path, done things my own way. We spent some time last week talking. David's not a perfect man at all. That's why he's so revered and loved by those that read all of his uh, shenanigans, and both the highs and lows of his life, is that he's a a, a man Truly in relationship with God and sometimes participating poorly and sometimes over the top. And at the end here, I take it that he concludes, I, I, I want to be restored. I want to be, uh, to, to, to redwell perhaps is the image. In fact, uh, many, uh, some of your Bibles might say or often aside, uh, the word return is used instead of the word dwell. There is a textual problem here. Uh, the Masoretic text, which is typically the one that is correct actually has return. It uh, doesn't have to, to make the point, we've already seen the concept of restoring in 23.3, but if you kind of put both of those together, you might see a little different picture of Psalm 23 than you might have had before. His confidence is because he spent some time in the wilderness, and now he's learned that God, the ever-faithful covenanteer, does restore me, and I want to return to him. And if that's not correct, if the return part is incorrect it's still very valid that he would say, wherever he is, I want to be. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, he doesn't literally live in the Holy of Holies, but that, that, that kind of idea of wherever he is, I want to be there uh, and, and, and dwell in his house. Now, this might convey that David has been away from the sanctuary, meditating on the provisions of the Lord and thus prompting his desire to return. Uh, certainly, we know his desire to be restored Uh, or he has experienced restoration from verse 3. The same word that we see here, the same word family. Uh, And then literally, uh, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I dropped that off, sorry. Uh, For for the length of days, literally, it's just his particular life, he wanted to be around the tabernacle, the place where God lived. It's just how he viewed the Lord. uh, and And thus, in his way of thinking, if he's there... That's where I am uh, in that kind of, of close-knit relationship now formed. He concludes then that the, good and, or the goodness and loyal love of the Lord will persistently follow him everywhere. And I think for all of us, and this was, uh, I had two key moments in my preparation, the, the restoration passage of 23.3, the, the whole idea of the restoration of the soul, that we were intended for complete harmony and that through sin we, we, we chisel away, we, chasms occur, and incompletion thus is the result. And that needs to be shored back up. It needs to be firm back up to be made re-whole again, if you will. Uh, and, and this idea here uh, uh, that it will persistently follow him. I think he just reached a point where he goes, you know, I'm just going to believe that God's in this deal with me and he ain't going anywhere. He's just, this just, is just real. My whole experience with him in the past has taught me that he's faithful. I'm just going to logically extrapolate that linear line and say, if he's done it this far in the past, I'm concluding he's going to keep on doing it. Not in a sense of, well, I can then do anything I want, but that's just the nature of God. And that's what he's ultimately wrestling with. And, you know, theologically and all these things that we have to deal with at times of, you know, losing salvation and all these ideas. Words like this, images like this, just come against those ideas and says, that's preposterous. Uh, The the stability and solidity of God's determined faithfulness to us is so much more powerful than something that we could do. If we prove faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy Uh, 2.15. To stand on that truth... It should, should invoke a response of gratitude and thankfulness to be in such a, a, uh, to be so happy to be in such a great deal with such a great God. And could it be used to say, well, then I think i 'll go sin and we 'll see how faithful he is?" Yeah, but that 's clearly not the meaning, the idea that even if we prove to be faithless, faithless he will remain faithful he 's used an extreme statement to show how faithful he is. And I think David finally says, "Amen i buy it. I'm, I'm, I'm fully in. He, he, he's always going to be with me. So his conclusion then is that I, or the result then, then I want to be with him. I've concluded that he'll always want to be with me because he said he would, because he has. And he's given me no indication that he wants to stop. And so I think he's finally just said, wherever he is, that's where I want to be too. I want to go in those worn out paths. I want to have my eyes go on what he sees. I want to stay on that path, although it might be alluring and, and seductive to go off that path. And David had experienced that allurement and seduction in his life. But he learned that the path of the Lord is the good path, and the house of the Lord is where God is. I want to stay there as long as I'm alive, basically how he's phrasing his conclusion. Images of provision we talked about that come out throughout this little psalm, the idea of feeding and leading, healing and guiding, protecting. These are the everyday provisions of the Lord for all of us, not just for David in Psalm 23. This is what God's doing now. These are the active ministries or provisions of the Lord in the life of all believers. Uh, To some extent or the other, this is how he works with us. Uh, And it's uh, really quite beautiful and and really very easily grasped. It's, It's not a complicated relationship. And I think at the end, that's what David figured out. He's with me. I want to be with Him. Yeah, could it be that simple? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters, restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You do prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell or return to the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The essence of Psalm 23. And hopefully it's it's, it's give you some things to, to ponder upon. I want to go back. We've we got about ten minutes. Certainly any questions or comments, but were there any things that you observed in your uh, little preview that we did that you didn't feel or that I dealt with or that you were confused about or did that help you in any way? I particularly like that kind of study, but I'm also not so stupid that I don't think that just because I like it, everybody else does. But it's an interesting way and a kind of a creative way, I think, to look at familiar passages, to sort of force those eyes back to those familiar areas of the text where it's all marked up, and say, I'm going to look at this afresh, and to come at it sort of like a, a counselor, John, or a doctor. You know, what's, what what were the symptoms that presented prior to this uh, prescription? We've got some time. Anybody, uh, Rhonda. The rod was the shorter rod that you would, the sheep would pass under. That were was for close. Uh, what's a word in military, I think, close guard kind of thing where you, you could just poke someone, like move, move that sheep here. The staff would have been larger, and the staff would have been also an element of defense. David used not only the stones, but the, the staff to uh, ward off uh, attacks. You know, the, the larger staff that we you would use, that became a club also. So other than culturally, I don't really know, but th- they're clearly both stated, but that's how they were used. And the rod, especially, is important on the metaphoric level that you passed under the rod, accounted for in the morning. Rhonda, here, coming back. Rhonda, here, good. Or, I'll use Lance. Where's Lance? <laughs> you all stay here. I gotta go get him again, and we'll bring him back. Dick. Yeah. I noticed forever is really all. This Psalm 16 that's quoted in Acts four, I think, five or six, seems to be certainly what the New Testament uses. Great question. Um, if you really want to go deep on that, an excellent book is called The Other Side of the Good News, which is really inside in the doctrine of hell, but it, it, it goes back before that into the whole concept of Sheol, the afterlife, paradise, Tatarus, Abraham's bosom, what is all this stuff that the Bible talks about. And like anything, the, the scripture progressively reveals the truth. Okay, Now, we, we walked in this room with a very clear indication that immediately if an individual dies, they're either in the presence of the Lord or not in the presence of the Lord, which is the essence of, of, of heaven. Heaven is out of place. I don't know, but how the Scripture talks about it is you, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But that we, it, it takes a while for the Scripture to get you to that certainty that Philippians, in that case, brings you. So the idea of Shehol, which is literally just the grave in most of the times that it's used. If we were to go to a, a burial, we would say, all right, that's a hole and the casket's going in the grave. But like we might imagine, it expands also to the place or places that the departed might have gone to. So the departed spirit place, it's sort of that's the next little like it's like like peeling an avocado. Sort of the next thing. Oh, interesting! I didn't know about that. And and it, it's David sort of right in the middle uh, of that progression. Now, interestingly, Job had uh, wonderful insight into it, and I don't know if if he just alone had it, or am I missing what David would have understood? Uh, Yet though he slay me, I will trust him. I, if I go to the grave, I will be raised again. That sort of imagery, uh, Jesus, or that Paul's quotation of of of. of David in, in Psalm 16, if I go to decay, he talks about, but then some imagery of life afterward. Um, his, his statement to his the son that died as a result of his sin with Bathsheba. He's certainly at least saying, wherever you are, I will go to you. Could he be saying that you're in a place of the Lord's presence and I will go there also? All, all I'm really trying to say is, it's not as clear as we have it. But those are the, the, the little citations that just off the top of my head that you can kind of study on your own. But it's important, I think, and I, I really try to do this every time I have the opportunity, is we walk into these Old Testament passages with so much more knowledge than they would have had. And it's just not fair to dump all this concrete of theology that we have and say, you've got to hold up everything I, I know already. You, you'll see where it's just a, 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 a brick in the wall, you know, good night, I'm quoting some rock and roll song, I can't believe it. Uh, Pink Floyd, I don't have any idea where that came from, sorry. <laughs> I'm glad some other stuff doesn't come back, that'd be very embarrassing. But it's just another thread in the tapestry, a safer metaphor. Um, and 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 you see it build, so it's, we have to be very disciplined to say, okay, where did I get all this knowledge that I have? It's You'll find that it's more in the, the graduate school side of the Bible, the Old Testament, sort of the elementary school side of the Bible, and we're we're taking some pretty serious Pauline nuggets and forcing them back. You can see them in shadow form, but not everyone uh, understood everything equally uh, at the same time. It's like reading a book; you know, the characters develop, plot thickens, uh, and it moves along. Yes, sir. When we read like the Old Testament, how do we balance? how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament mm-hmm. versus, you know, how, what they would know the recommendation? The first reading, I try to put blinders on, where I just, I have to leave my knowledge that we spent a couple of weeks ago or three weeks ago on Psalm 2, that that will eventually be used about Jesus. And I have no problem. That was God's intent all along. But I've got to also know that the likely candidate for that psalm is a Jewish king living under the authority of the Lord. So just that, that knowing the story of the Bible and where things fit in, where the next brick comes in, where the next tapestry area is affixed is important, kind of knowing the whole story, knowing where you are in the story. It's easy to talk about places you've been. So you could tell the whole story of your vacation to Cozumel or you could tell the last day or you could do it linearly. So I like to do linearly. This is what's going on. This is what people would have known and just be very rigid in my first pass through that what would the author's intended meaning mean to someone who got a literal scroll and some priest or prophet was reading it in a synagogue in Hebron or Machpelah? What would they have thought? You know, what did they know? And what? And now then, the next level is is because ultimately the scripture all points to Christ. To have a Christological and theological view of things is is correct, but it, it will all eventually come in through the Christ junction, if you will. How did the Bible use this to get to there? And, and that step is also helpful because you'll identify two or three more little relay moments, like passing the baton to see how the doctrine is fully formed to that we understand and just make the mistake of saying, oh, didn't everybody? Now, little silly things. Like what did the people in the upper room in Acts 2, what did they know about the rapture? What did they know about the gifts of the Spirit? And the Holy Spirit had been in them a minute or two. They, you know, what did Abram know in Genesis fifteen when it says he believed God and reckoned Him as righteous? Which is probably just a a a statement about his faith when he left Ur. What did he? You think he he left there and said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm telling you what. You know, that seed of the woman, and that's crucial." Genesis three, the seed of the woman and the seed. Of the serpent, that's going to result in God becoming a man, dying for me after living thirty to thirty-five years or whatever, dying on a cross and being raised from the dead. Isn't it clear to everyone? And it's just not. And and so you have to really be rigid with blinders, and uh, it's hard. But knowing the whole story is helpful. And and so like your vacation story, I'm just going to tell days one, two, and three. Not going to tell you what happens later. Let me pray for us, and then we can keep chatting. But I want to let you out on time. Lord, thanks again. For the privilege to study and think about these things and to ponder the person of of God. Uh, Lord, you are our feeder, our provider, our guide, our healer, uh, and we want to follow you. We want to be where you are for you. You have uh, wooed us into um, harmony with you. For uh, the times where we stray, Lord, uh, remind us that your goodness and loving kindness will never stray from us. Um, Break us that way, Lord. Uh, If it be your pleasure, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One more time, next week we'll talk about Psalm 150. Particularly, that's your assignment, but uh, images of hallelujah, some good Hebrew stuff.